Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In honor of Yom HaShoah, the Holocaust Remembrance Day, we visit with Bernard Offen, a survivor of five concentration camps in Nazi-occupied Poland when he was a young teenager during World War II. Bernard Offen leads tours of these concentration camps and says, You don't have to be a survivor or Jewish. It's for all the wounded who want to understand the power of good and evil and want to create goodness in the world. When Bernard often visited the studios of Radio Curious in April of 2005, he began our conversation by describing some of his early childhood experience in Krakow, Poland, in the years just prior to World War II. Well, I was personally called a Christ killer. Do you understand? Bernard the Christ killer. Only because you're Jewish? Because I'm Jewish. Because uh, that's the way it was interpreted by um, some priests and uh, young people. When I went to school, I played with uh, my Polish classmates. But I had to be careful also because sometimes they threw stones at me or, or something like that. For us, it was normal, but it was not easy. What percentage of the population in Poland in 1937, 1938, was Jewish? About 10%, actually. In 1939, Germany overran Poland. Tell us what you remember. Well, I remember prior to the war, going to my uncle's uh, apartment house, which was uh, just down the street. They were listening to the radio, concerned about uh, Germany and the threats to, uh, to invade Poland. I remember that, uh, there was fear about that. I, I didn't quite understand what was going on, but I, I could sense an unease what will happen to Jews because Hitler's speeches were against Jews also. On the seventh day of the invasion of the, of the war, they marched into Krakow. There was supposed to be a curfew. That means all the gates and all the windows are supposed to be closed, none open. But I, as a young uh, 11-year-old boy, curious, I went out the gate to the uh, main street in Krakow to see soldiers. Some soldier jumped down from a truck with a rifle, took a shot at me. I was probably about 20 yards away, and to quite recently, I thought that he was one that killed me. But then I realized that German soldier was usually trained very well, and shooting with a rifle for that kind of a distance, he probably wanted to scare me. I was just a young kid, and because there was no Jewish area specifically that we lived in, it was a mix of people. It was maybe uh, half half Polish, meaning Catholic, and half Jews. And so, what happened? What do you remember? People had to mark their stalls and businesses. Also, at the same time, they started coming with trucks into the streets that we lived on, 
and they started rounding up Jews for work. The terrible things that we know about now didn't quite begin there. Only occasionally was there someone shot. But they forced people to go to work. My brothers were forced to go to work at gunpoint, get on the truck. If you don't get on the truck, you see a body laying there, you get on the truck. Later on, I was forced to work also. Those were the beginnings before the ghetto. The ghetto, which is uh, later appears uh, in the Schindler List story, uh, a ghetto was created in 1941 in uh, the Krakow ghetto. Barbed wire, fence, and uh, also walls were built and gates. You might receive permission to go out the ghetto. We had to wear an armband. We were literally marked people. They started coming into our neighborhood even before before the ghetto started, surrounding a whole block, and it's a great, great big block. Uh, and everyone had to come out. If they found you, they didn't come out. They shot people down on the spot. It was uh, in one of those raids that my uh, grandmother disappeared. She lived in the same apartment house. They were rounding up, deporting older people and young people. I was young, so I went into hiding. When I stayed around the apartment building where we lived because uh, something could happen. I had two hiding places I could hide in. And it was in one of those times when I, uh, I was hidden. Grandmother disappeared when I when someone came to someone from the family came to inform me that it's all over, I can come out. I found that the grandmother was gone. Just gone. Taken by truck to places unknown. Never heard from her or of her again. So that that was the beginnings of uh, what was starting to happen to us Jews. Later on, when the ghetto was uh, was created, there were registration of people. You had to have a, a, a permit that you are working, a special permit. If you didn't have it, you were liable to be deported. Whoever didn't have it, they picked up and people disappeared. Did the non-Jewish people have a work permit? Well, I don't know of that because that was in the ghetto. The, the non-Jewish people were, they were in the rest of the city, but not within the ghetto. But I understand that um, they had lots of restrictions also. At that time, the Jewish people were easily identified by the language that they spoke, by Yiddish? Well, it was not only that. That was one of the things. It was the armband which you had to wear and also identification papers. And there were patrols always uh, everywhere. If you were caught outside the ghetto not wearing an armband, uh, you were liable to be shot right then and there. And people were shot. And they left the bodies where they fell? Yes. They left the body there for quite some time to create terror. Since I was underage... Uh, uh, at that time, underage, they considered uh, uh, um, below 13, and I was in the beginning. I, I had to be in hiding a lot. 
What was it like for a young boy to be hiding? How did you pass your time? What were the kinds of things that you thought about? I don't know if you can experience that kind of uh, fear of what, not knowing what is going on, and you hear shooting in the distance. It was kind of numbing, listening to what was happening, listening to um, shrieks of people shouting of uh, German language. I was assured by my father, my mother, we were still together, that it will end and uh, it, it won't last long and uh, it'll be over. Just, uh, just do what we tell you and it'll be okay. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Bernard Offen, who is a survivor of five concentration camps formed by the Germans to gather up and kill the Jewish people of Europe during World War II. Bernard often lives in California and Hawaii about half the year, and in Poland the other half of the year, where he takes people on witnessing trips of the concentration camps where he was uh, interred during World War II. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Bernard, what happened when the Nazis came and took you and your family? Well, it was a uh, actually a long process. Uh, my two older brothers disappeared from the ghetto, and I did not know whether they were alive. After a couple of months, they reappeared again, only to disappear again from my life, from our house. Again, I did not know. We did not know what, where they were and if they were alive, in fact. My father and mother had work permits, and my sister too. My father worked as a shoemaker in a uh, uh, German concern, uh, making boots for the German army. My mother and sister worked in a factory making uniforms, and they, they had a work permit. It was during the time of the ghetto, which lasted for two years. My uh, mother and father said to me, we want you to go uh, smuggling food. And I did that many times. Uh, I went out of the ghetto. I traded things for food and came back in. Sometimes uh, the guard at the uh, main gate was bribed and uh, he would let me uh, pass without uh, searching particularly one time that my mother and father uh, said I should go out of the ghetto to go smuggling food. They sent me out very, very early in the morning. It was still dark before, um, before the light of dawn. My, my sister was there too. They looked out in directions to see where the guards on the outside of the barbed wire were. And they lifted up the the wire and said, Bernard, go now. So I slid under the barbed wire and ran across the road into the hills, uh, which are uh, not far away from uh, where we were living. I did my trading a little later on during the uh, morning for, uh, for food. I had uh, either some clothes or maybe a pair of shoes that my father rebuilt a... Uh, Use pair of shoes, but if they were 
wearable and in good shape. You could get things for it. He told me usually what I should get approximately for uh, for these shoes or some clothes or tablecloth. And I was ready to come back to the ghetto. And I was still in the hills, actually. I saw that the whole ghetto was surrounded by uh, SS and uh, Ukrainian guards and uh, Latvians. And I couldn't get back in. I heard shooting. Uh, I had screams. The raid went on most of the day. It was not till late, late in the afternoon that I saw the Germans withdrawing their forces. And it was then that I returned. My father, whom I left in the morning, was not the same man anymore. My mother, his wife, his daughter, my sister, by two years uh, older than I, uh, were taken away. We never saw them again. They were there when you left in the morning and gone when you came home that night. Right. Right. So that left your father and your two brothers. Yes. I didn't know where my brother were, if they in fact were alive, but it left uh, my father and I together. Despite his mourning, despite his depression, he uh, was still my my support, my uh, life uh, you might say, because he, he kept encouraging me and, uh, and helping me. How long did you stay in the ghetto after you lost your mother and your sister? Uh, we were there about another three months. And you were about 13, 14 years old? I was uh, 13 and a half. I had my uh, bar mitzvah in, in the ghetto, just my father and I. And uh, he gave me his blessings. Uh, then uh, the ghetto was liquidated, evacuated the whole ghetto. We were sent uh, a force march to the nearby camp, which is called Plashov. Uh, it's part of that uh, Schindler List story where uh, approximately 10,000 people were murdered in that camp. But that was just a small camp. My father and I put into barracks after that march. Within several days of our having arrived in the Pashov camp, there were orders in the, within the camp that young boys or girls have to report to the central Pelplatz, place of reporting. There was no choice because there's no place to hide. It's just barracks surrounded by a double barbed wire electrified fence with guard towers with machine guns. We knew what they do when they find someone who didn't report and was supposed to. They shoot them right down. So there was no choice. I reported to the central square, and within a short time, we were put on horse-drawn wagons. Old Polish horse-drawn wagons. They're not square. They're kind of on an angle, the sides. And we were driven out of the camp. Along the way, I overheard one of the guards that uh, we're going to be shot. I and uh, some other kids decided to jump. We did. I kept running. I heard shooting. I don't know what happened to anybody else. And I hid myself and got away. I was free. I didn't know quite what to do. 
I hid myself in a, in a cemetery, in a Catholic cemetery. I wanted to make contact with my uh, uncle. His name was Meyer Gottreich, who worked on a construction site right near the uh, uh, cemetery in which I was hiding. They were destroying uh, houses in the area in which they were going to build a bridge. And they were destroying it for the, uh, for the brick and the wood and for uh, building material. So I uh, hid myself in one of those houses they were destroying and covered myself over with uh, pieces of wood and some bricks I put on there as much as I could. And I left a, uh, uh, a way for me to see out. In the morning when uh, people came to work, I could see, and I knew that they were Jewish prisoners. I attracted some prisoner, and I started talking to him in Yiddish. And I told him who I am and who I'm looking for. After a while, my uncle came, pretended to be working near where I am. He said to me, I don't know what you can do or how to help you. However, you could come back with us to the camp I am in, which was across the road from the Prashu camp. It was called Ulag. Ulag meaning an abbreviation in German, Juden Lager, in, and it had a number, Ulag 1. You could come back with, with me. So I said to him, no, thank you. I'm going to try contact some Polish people, meaning Catholic people, whom my brother befriended. I went to them, uh, and they uh, took me in, fed me. I slept overnight in their place, but I had to leave the next night. They gave me food, but I had to leave. They had three children. Their apartment house was across the street from an SS barracks, so they would be shot if I was found there. If the German occupiers knew that they were harboring you? Yes, of course. They were uh, liable to be shot. People were shot for hiding Jews, so I had to leave. I did not know where to go, and uh, no other help was offered to me. So I returned to the same place, the cemetery, uh, hid myself there, and I actually created the same scene of where I hid myself in a construction site and again summoned uh, uh, my uncle when I saw prisoners coming to work. He said to me, okay, come with me to the camp. They're not shooting many people there. That was my best offer I had, you understand? They're not shooting many people there. If I'd be found on the streets, I was liable to be shot for sure. And you were about 14, 14 and a half. I was 14, 14 and a half, correct. And I decided to go back with him. And when it was time to uh, uh, march to the camp, we were usually marching in the columns of fives. They put me in the middle column. However, uh, I, was, uh, I was small. They picked me up just before the camp, under my arms. Two men picked me up under the arms. My feet were not touching the, uh, the ground, and we marched into the camp. I figured it out uh, years later why that was so. Uh, the, the SS, when you were marching in or out of the camp, they were counting people by fives. So anyways, I was smuggled in, 
into a concentration camp. And I tell that to people, they said, it's crazy, absolutely insane. Why didn't you run away? Why didn't you go someplace else? Why didn't you? But you had nowhere to go. I had nowhere to go. Absolutely nowhere to go. And anyone caught helping a Jew was uh, liable to be shot. That only existed in Poland, as far as I know. Not in France, not in any of the other countries. They were penalized in some way, but not to be shot. So uh, I was in that camp for about two weeks, and I had to stay hidden. My uncle said, uh, "You, uh, when we go to work, the camp totally emptied out of, uh, of men. It was a men's camp. You go up into the rafters and sit there and be quiet. And I did that. But while I was up in the rafters, SS, uh, the, those were uh, Ukrainians, were shooting people I could see through the window right outside of the barracks. And that went on for almost two weeks. There was an awful, awful hard time for me to be quiet and to, uh, to see that. It was an awful, awful, long, long day before my uncle came back. When they came back, you could come down uh, out of the rafters and be with the other men. You would blend in as part of the crowd at that time. Right. And I slept with my uncle, so there was no extra bunks available. In the meantime, I contracted typhoid fever, and I still had to go up there. Between the typhoid fever and what was going on on the outside, it's a miracle that I survived that time. There were a lot of miracles that brought you here today. Sometimes I'm just uh, so surprised. Sometimes uh, maybe regretful. How do you mean? No, I survived and my family didn't, others didn't. Maybe it would have been peace, I don't know. But it, it's a burden. You resolve that peace and resolve the burden by leading tours to where you were 60 years ago. After being liberated by the American army in Germany, which is quite later after Auschwitz, after Dachau, I ended up emigrating to the United States, to Detroit. Around 1965 or so, after being in Korea. You were drafted into the United States Army and sent to Korea. Correct. I had dreams, and the dream was uh, such a fear of remembering what happened to me in the past. And I started to realize that if I don't confront my past in some way by going back there, there was such a fear in me, I knew that I would get sick, physically sick. And it was then that I spoke with my brothers, and they said, yeah, we want to go back too. And we said, okay, we'll start a savings account so we can save up some money, and once uh, we're ready, we'll, we'll have the money and we'll go. Uh, 1981, I was ready to go. The dreams were so strong that I knew I had to go back to the snake pit. My brothers were not ready to go, and I was. So I, with my partner, booked a trip to Poland, 1981. About a week after I booked the trip, I get a call and said, I'm sorry, but the trip is canceled. Why? There's unrest in Poland. 
meaning solidarity movement was going strong and there was all kinds of possibilities, civil war and all kinds. And I said, well, I'm sorry that the trip is canceled, but I'm ready to go and I'm going. So I booked privately, got a ticket, and we decided to go. It was my necessity to go back. I went through the Krakow ghetto. I went to the nearby Prashov camp. I went to Auschwitz. It was very hard for me. The memories came, came flooding back. But uh, I realized that that is the beginning of my healing process by, by being able to cry, by being able to be with the experience for, for uh, some time. It was then that I started planning my first film. And since then, I, I've created a, a trilogy, a documentary trilogy about my family and what happened in the Holocaust from a personal point of view. It was not till 1991, 10 years later, that I was able to go back to Poland again. 10 years it took me to digest what transpired for me and what to do with it in the, in the larger sense. And now, 14 years after that trip, Bernard Offen, what are your reflections on what happened and where you are now in relationship to what happened to you as a young boy and an older man? Well, the reflection is that it is absolutely uh, fatal for me to be dwelling about my past, about the Holocaust, from a health point of view. And I turned it around and I looked at it as a healing process by uh, walking with people, witnessing what happened to my family and I in this or that place. It is a uh, unloading, a downloading, you might say, from the hard disk to other people, simply witnessing what transpired. It truly has turned out to be a great healing process for me. It's not without difficulty when I have to go with a group of people and repeat some of the things. But the amazing thing about taking different groups of people is that new things come to me because of questions people ask. And it'll trigger a whole new string of remembrances. Sometimes I cry, but I go on, even with my crying, and tell the people what came to me. That's the healing process. It goes quite deep. I share that with people. I don't stop. To this point in time, I've led almost 3,000 people that know my personal story that have walked with me. And I continue in that vein, and I'll probably continue to the rest of my life. Well, Bernard Offen, I want to thank you very much for sharing your stories with us on Radio Curious. Before we close, can you tell us about a book that you would recommend? I can tell you about my book. It should be out uh, this year, and it's called My Hometown Concentration Camp. Bernard Offen, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you very much for uh, inviting me and listening to my story. Bernard Offen is a survivor of five concentration camps in Nazi-held Poland during World War II. The book he recommends is his own book, entitled My Hometown Concentration Camp. This interview was recorded in April of 2005. 
There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.